All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Before we get into the word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our time of study. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the written word. We thank you for the living word. The living word whose mind is partially revealed to us in the scripture. And it's the scripture that's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Because it represents the truth. Which is why Jesus prayed, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. There is power in your word because it's the truth. It orients us to reality. It orients us to life as you designed it. It orients us to the ultimate purpose for our lives, that we might find meaning and hope, not in the details of life, but in our relationship to you through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, Father, as we study today, as we review what we have studied, as we focus upon uh, the key doctrine that's developed in Matthew, which is being a disciple of Jesus Christ. We pray that you might challenge us, that we might be responsive to that challenge to push on in our spiritual life, not be satisfied with where we are or what we've gained, but that our goal will always be pressing on to the high calling of Jesus Christ as expressed by the Apostle Paul. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, we're going to continue our study today down in verse 13. And I want to read this section because I want to have it in our minds. We're not going to do much with it today. Uh, I started to look at this yesterday and the day before, uh, actually earlier in the week, and the more I thought about it, the more I studied my way through it. And this is one of the more interesting and challenging I don't think it's that challenging, but I've understood it for a while. But I think for a lot of people, it's a very challenging passage. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, this is really locked into the context of Matthew. And we need to understand that before we go forward. And so about 3 o'clock in the morning when I was lying wide awake, I thought, well, I need to go back and just kind of point out how this fits in the context. And as I was... uh, Putting the final touches this morning on it, I realized I had about eight pages of notes, and I wasn't done with the introduction yet. But it's a good review, and as I pointed out many times, I like to stop after we've gone through two or three chapters and go back and look at the uh, look at the uh, forest so we can understand the trees a little bit better. But let me read this chapter because there'll be things I allude to in the introduction that you need to have in your in your mind. So Jesus said, or Matthew writes, The little children were brought to him, that he might put his hand on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, 
for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's all this about children? We've seen it once before. We need to connect the dots. And what's this about the kingdom of heaven? We've seen this too. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Three short verses. But what's interesting is those three verses talking about the children are always connected to the next event and precede the next event in every synoptic gospel. You can't understand the one without the other. They are integrally related. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. That, is, that statement right there is the interpretive key to the whole section. Because what do you have to do to be saved, to have eternal life? You have to believe, not follow. Follow me tells me this is not about how to get to heaven or how to be justified. Follow me tells me that this is about discipleship, and it's not about getting saved and getting eternal life, that is, going to heaven when you die. So he says, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, most people stop there. We so atomize these gospel accounts in looking at these individual sections that we lose the fact that in the original there were no chapter divisions and no verse divisions and no little headings telling us that it goes from this to this. And, and what's hard for many of us is we have to mentally remove those verse divisions and remove those those chapter divisions, so we can actually catch the flow of what's going on here. The conversation continued. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Once again, we see this interchange between two phrases, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. They're synonymous, but what does that have to do with what's going on? When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? And see, we read that and we think, how do we get into heaven? Because as I've said, ad infinitum, ad nauseum, the word saved in Scripture does not just mean getting into heaven when we die. It has other allusions, and many times it is talking about how to experience the fullness of our new relationship with Christ, not just getting it. Who then can be saved, they say. But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. 
Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. There's that word again, follow. Jesus said, follow me, and Peter has caught that, and he's saying, but we've left everything, and we followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have, what does he say? Followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Their reward in the future is connected to how well they follow Jesus. This isn't talking about getting justified so you go to heaven when you die. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Pay attention to that verse. Just sort of lock it back in your memory for just a little while. Okay, there's a lot there. A lot there. It's going to take some time to go through it, but it's really pretty simple. But what we have to do is realize that this has a context. And so what we're looking at is the broad themes of this context, going back to chapter 17, that focus on forgiveness, status or status in the kingdom, and entering the kingdom. Now, one of the most important things that you've heard me say many, many times is we have to understand context. Context to Bible study is like location to real estate. The three rules or the three laws of real estate are location, 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 and the three laws of Bible study are context, context, context. It's the same things. Where is it located? And so often we go to passages and we just sort of take them out of context. We may be drawing implications from some of those verses, but we have to make sure that we understand what is being said and what's not being said in the original context when Jesus is talking. This is one of the great values and importance of verse-by-verse Bible teaching. You will not learn this, a pastor will not learn this, if he is doing topical studies on five, five basic things you can do to have a happy and productive marriage or how to be successful in your job, or how to avoid depression and be happy. These little sermonettes that people get where pastors just take verses out of context. I remember when I was in seminary taking a course on pastoral psychology and counseling, and the uh, two men who taught the class, who uh, both had their uh, PhDs and, and their MDs. They were they were psychiatrists. They were doctors, and they had spent many many years with a very fine Christian organization called the Navigators. And they had memorized a lot of Bible verses. But what they were doing was what a lot of people do: is they just proof text verses. Sound it sounds good, so we're going to stick it in here. We've seen past where even in this context where we've seen examples of this, where you have people who say. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Oh, when two or three of us pray, we're going to have more power. That's heresy. That's not what that verse is talking about. In context, prayer is nowhere to be found. In context, it's about where two or three of us confirm a church disciplinary action against somebody, then Jesus is in our midst. It's a discipline passage. It's not a prayer passage. But if we don't pay attention to context, we just claim all kinds of promises that aren't ours and have nothing to do with our spiritual life. So we really have to look at context 
Yesterday I had a little lesson in context. A uh, bunch of us got the opportunity, uh, a bunch of us who work out at the CrossFit gym where I work out, got the opportunity to go over here to the Texas Rock Gym, which is off of Campbell, and it's a, one of these rock climbing gyms. They've got all kinds of walls, and they've got about 55 or more routes that you can climb. And it was really interesting. I haven't done any rock climbing in a lot of years. And it was a great opportunity to just go over and have a little fun. But I got a couple of great illustrations out of it, too. And one is that when you look at this wall, this is what it looks like. You've just got a lot of details there. All of those are either are handholds and footholds, and they're all kinds of different colors. But basically, compared to Bible study, this is like all the words in the text. You just have a lot of data there. And when you're first sitting there, you're trying to take in everything. You haven't climbed anything like me. You haven't climbed anything in a while. And so you're pretty much looking at eye level. Okay, what am I going to do to start off with? And the way these things are set up, now this isn't a picture from the gym where I went, but the way these things are set up is you have, you have certain routes that are marked. Now where I was climbing yesterday, the routes are all mixed in together. These are a little more separated, but that helps in illustrating what I'm talking about. Uh, the green ones, that's one route. The red ones are another route. The yellow ones are another route. The black or charcoal, that's, that's even another route. And what you're supposed to do, each route is going to have uh, a different level of challenge to it. And so what you have to do when you're sitting there and you see all this detail is you have to learn to focus on what's the main route. It's like Bible study. You have to focus on what's the theme. And as you start off, you're just really focused on, can I make it to the next handhold? What am I doing? And you're, 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 you're thinking about all these other things that are going on. And about the third time I went up the wall, it was, uh, <clears throat> I was a little more successful. But by then I realized that what I had to do was take a step or three back and just look at the whole wall and get the context of the route I was going to climb. That's like Bible study. It's the same principle of looking at a map and orienting to the whole area before you start focusing in on your individual route. Context is important. And so you have to focus on the context. And sometimes that just takes a lot of time. I can't tell you how much I'm learning going through Matthew and how, I don't know, we've been here two years, and I read it over and over, and I'm always amazed at what I pick up especially after I've gone three or four chapters down the road and all of a sudden I realize, wow, this really does connect back to what was going on. So let's get a review. Let's just turn back to Matthew 17 and sort of walk our way through these chapters and remind ourselves of what has been going on. At the end of chapter, chapter 16, Jesus is going to take three disciples. He's going to exercise a politically incorrect activity called discrimination, and he's going to take three of his disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration, so they are going to get some additional insight, additional revelation, and an an additional look at Jesus that the others don't get. You know, modern man and human viewpoint looks at that and says, oh, how unfair of Jesus. You know, a bunch of idiots. Anyhow, that's what happens in human viewpoint. You impose a false standard, you get the false, false answer. So Jesus is going to take them up there. And what's happened in this particular section is that Jesus has just begun to teach them something 
at the end of chapter 16, verse 21, we read from that time Jesus began to what? Show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. We're going to see that focus on his coming death, burial, and resurrection mentioned several times in the coming chapters. Now, the question is why? And the answer is because he's training them so that they can assume leadership of this new organization that's going to come into being after his ascension, which is the church. And so he's training them for the time when he is no longer here. So we have to keep that in mind. He's talking to his disciples who are already born-again believers. They are justified. They're regenerate. Uh, they are saved. They are, their destiny is with the Lord, where he says in John 14 that uh, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am you may be with me also. We have to establish this. He's talking to people whose destiny is heaven. But what he's talking to them about, what he's training them about is discipleship. There's only one of the four Gospels that really emphasizes discipleship, and that is Matthew. Matthew records the last commandment of Jesus to his disciples, and that is go and make disciples. And again and again and again through Matthew, Matthew emphasizes for us the higher standard Jesus is setting for those who want to be more than just uh, couch potatoes in their Christian life, that we have to follow Jesus. We have to take up our cross and, and follow him. All of these are commands related to what's involved in growing and maturing as a believer, and they have nothing to do with our ultimate uh, goal after we die. Okay, But people confuse that all the time. So on the Mount of Transfiguration... Jesus reveals his glory. This is the first point in the review. There's 12. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus revealed his glory to a subset of these disciples, Peter, James, and John, and at least three things are accomplished. The first thing that's accomplished is they saw the glory of the Lord. They come to a better, higher level of understanding that he really isn't just a man. He is the eternal God. They see his glory. Second thing is that God the Father speaks to them. After Peter puts, starts to put his foot in his mouth, God the Father says, basically, shut up, Peter. Listen up. Don't talk. Listen to my son. Hear him. Third, Moses and Elijah appear, and they talk to the Lord according to the Luke account, which isn't emphasized. This, this phrase isn't emphasized in Matthew. In the Luke account, Moses and Elijah talk to Jesus about his soon coming death. Now, Matthew will insert that. This is the uh, second point. In Matthew 17, 9 through 13, Matthew brings out this same dimension. So Luke says that Jesus and Elijah and Moses are talking about his coming, soon coming death. And then Matthew says that when they came down from the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anybody about what you saw until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So he's teaching them again about the, his death and resurrection. All this is setting the context in Matthew, remember, for their future ministry. Third thing that we see in Matthew 17, in verses 14 through 20, when they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and you've got Jesus and 
Peter, James, and John, they discovered that the other nine disciples had been getting in a bit of a kerfuffle with the with the Pharisees over casting a demon out of a young child, and they can't do it because they don't have any faith. That's what Jesus says. You don't have any faith, and uh, that that is why you couldn't cast the demon out. And the Pharisees have basically put them on the spot, and they're trying. They were apparently trying to cast the demon out through uh, the usual means, and things just weren't going very well from them. They they hadn't learned the lesson, uh, the lesson of faith, and so the disciples couldn't handle it because they they were not operating on faith. Now Jesus, in his emphasis of the lack of faith, is showing them that if they are going to succeed as disciples then they have to operate not on the world's modus operandi. They have to operate on Jesus' modus operandi. They have to operate on faith. They can't achieve the right thing the wrong way. They have to do God's work God's way. And any other way is going to be ineffective. And so they have to understand that they have to trust him and uh, correctly apply his teaching and correctly apply Bible doctrine. The fourth thing that we learn, and the fourth thing in the review, is as they return and go through Galilee, which is described in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, as they return and go through Galilee, Jesus again warns the disciples that he will be crucified and that on the third day he will be resurrected. This is seen in Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 to 23. The Son of Man, he says, is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. They just don't get it yet. That's what we learn also from some other passages. They're, they, it just doesn't communicate. What is happening is their presuppositional grid. They're still thinking the Messiah is going to be glorified and, and bring in the kingdom, and their presuppositional grid hasn't shifted yet. So when he says white, they're still looking at black. That's the power of presuppositions, and they're not letting their presuppositions be transformed by what he's saying. They're, they're, just, a bl- they're just blind to it. So the disciples can't understand this. The fifth thing is in the next lesson that Matthew relates in verses 24 through 27, after they've come down from the mountain and they've had this encounter, Jesus casts out the demon, he Uh, rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith, then while they're moving back from from that location toward uh, Capernaum, he reminds them again that he's going to be crucified and they'll kill him. And then apparently James and John went their way and he and Peter are going on to Capernaum. And then they have this question that's raised about, that's raised to Peter, well, doesn't your, your teacher pay the temple tax? And Jesus miraculously provides the payment of the temple tax by uh, uh, that will pay for them, teaching Peter that God is going to provide for his logistical needs. God's going to sustain him. A critical thing that you have to learn if you're going to be in any form of, of uh, pastoral ministry, any form of professional ministry, that God is going to supply the needs. So that's the fifth part in this progression. 
Now, what's happened here in chapter 17 is Jesus has discriminated against the other nine, and he's taken these three, and he's given them some special training and some special lessons that are for them alone and and also for Peter alone and aren't for the others. Well, this generated a certain amount of jealousy among the others, and they start asking this question, well, these guys seem to be getting some special privileges. Are they going to be sitting next to Jesus in the kingdom? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And they start focusing on the issue of status, and this is what leads Jesus to shift gears in the training starting in chapter 18. Verse 1 we read, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now this has to be understood to set the context, not only for chapter 18, but also for chapter 19. Because the last verse in chapter 19 says what? But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. That frames everything between 18.1 and the end of 19, okay? 19.30. That is so important to understand. And, and last, last couple of weeks, we did the lesson dealing with uh, marriage and divorce, and I pointed out that most people go there to find out if they can get a divorce. And the point of that whole passage isn't about what you, what, what, how you can get an escape clause in your, in your marriage. The whole point is you gotta ratchet your understanding of marriage and what you have to do to maintain the marriage up about five notches. It's not about getting a divorce, it's about having a God-honoring marriage. So in Matthew 18, the, the, Jesus shifts gears, and the occasion for this is uh, this issue of who's the greatest, who is going to be uh, have the greatest status in the kingdom. And so Jesus decides to give them a little object lesson, and he brings in a little child. Notice the child is introduced here at the beginning, and that's we go back to the child at the end of towards the end of the chapter in this series of events. And what I have here for you is I want to give you some the cross references. Matthew 9:33 to 37 gives us Mark's account. Then he came to Capernaum and when he was in the house he asked them, "What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road?" But they kept silent, a little embarrassed probably that they got found out. They kept silent for on the road they disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Didn't we just read that? See, I inserted Matthew 19.30 there. At the very end of chapter 19, but many who are first will be last and the last first. See, I want you to understand, this sets the context. This tells us that we're not talking about how to get to heaven when you die, how to make sure that when uh, when you die you are face-to-face with the Lord. This is talking about something beyond that. It's talking not about getting into heaven, but the quality and the extent of our appreciation and understanding and serving the Lord for all of eternity, what happens when we get into the kingdom. So, Verse 36, Then Jesus took a little child, set him in the midst of them for his object lesson, and when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And we have all kinds of sermons that I pointed out when we went went through this, that people start talking about how this is all about children. 
And it's not about children at all. The child represents something. And in that culture, the child didn't represent humility. I will not ask for a show of hands, but how many of you saw humility among your two, three, four, five, and six-year-old kids when they were growing up? It doesn't represent people who are not self-absorbed. I'm not going to ask you to point out which of your children was not self-absorbed between the ages of birth and whatever they are now. Um, That is the orientation of the sin nature. Jesus isn't pointing that out. In that culture, in the ancient Near East, children had no status whatsoever. They were, it was not only better for children uh, not to be heard but seen, they weren't to be heard or seen. They were just excluded. They weren't anybody. See, what Jesus is getting at is if to be a disciple, you have to understand it's not about status. It's about service. And when you focused on serving the Lord, the status question becomes irrelevant. It's about serving the Lord. And so that's what he's doing. He says, you've got to be like this little child, a nobody. In the eyes of the world, nobody's looking at you uh, to be somebody special because you are a servant of Christ. You have to recognize that that will be a negative and not a positive in the eyes of the world. And so that's the basis and foundation of this particular lesson. And so in verse 3... As I pointed out and we studied this, when Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become his little children, what he's mean, saying is unless you change your mind and get off your arrogant high horse trying to be somebody and turn and, and recognize that you are a nobody, you're, 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 it's not about status, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But the problem is people look at that phrase, enter the kingdom of heaven, and they think that that means getting into heaven when we die. But the whole context here is he's talking to people who are already going to get into heaven when they die. So he's got to be talking about something more than that. And then he says in verse 4, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, if he's talking about getting into heaven when you die, then what he's saying is the condition for getting into heaven when you die is you have to humble yourself. That's works. So he can't be talking about salvation. So the point, and and then one more thing, is as he wraps it up, he says, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But Luke adds something to that. Jesus says, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. See, this is what he's he's talking about, status. The whole issue here is is getting rid of this idea that I have to be have status in this this Christian life. So the point here is a disciple has to focus on status and not service. We see that enter the kingdom is a phrase that is often thought to be a synonym for getting into heaven. But the context here tells us that entering the kingdom means much more than that. It it means enjoying all of the dimensions of blessing and privilege that are in the kingdom. What are the conditions for salvation? The conditions for salvation are clearly stated numerous places in Scripture. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not through humility, not through service, not through joining a church. It's for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. And the that that in that phrase refers to the whole process of salvation. That process of salvation is not something that you can do on your own. 
Okay, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that salvation through faith by grace is not of yourselves. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. Very clear. You don't do anything. It's just a matter of trust. John 20, in John chapter 20, 30, and 31, John wrote, These are written, that is, these signs in John, these are written that you might believe. There's that word again. Faith is the noun pistis. Believe is the verb pistuo in John 20. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing and humbling yourself. Do you say that? No. That by believing you might have life in its name. It's, it's faith alone. The, the word pistis, the noun, is used 227 times in the New Testament. Sometimes it is used as faith for justification. Faith for justification. And in other passages it is talking about faith related to spiritual growth or faith for uh, claiming a specific promise. For example, in Matthew 8:13, Jesus said to the centurion after he had healed his son, "Go your way, and as you have or healed the servant, rather, go your way and as you have believed, so let it be done for you." See, he's not believing the gospel for eternal life. He is believing that Jesus can heal his servant. That's related to the spiritual life. Matthew 9:28. When he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? This isn't for, this isn't believing for eternal life. This is believing for Jesus being able to heal you, Jesus solving your problem. This is related to the spiritual life. Matthew 21, 22, Whatever things you ask in prayer, Jesus said, Believing, or by believing, you will receive. This is not related to getting eternal life and going to heaven when you die. This is talking about faith in the Christian life. So you have to discern in all these passages whether the faith that's being spoken of is faith related to the gospel, trusting in Christ and his death on the cross for eternal life, or whether it's for the fullness fullness of life. Romans 4, 3 through 5, Paul says, What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's what we refer to as phase one salvation justification. It is distinct from believing in reference to phase two, which is salvation from the power of sin, and that is our spiritual life. Paul goes on to say in Romans 4, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, the point is that if Jesus is talking about phase one justification, then he's saying it is work. You have to humble yourself. So that means he can't be talking about phase one. He's got to be talking about phase two. And so he is talking about the life, the life of the disciple and what is expected of them as disciples. And that they are to become like this child. They are to become non-status-seeking believers seeking to serve God and not man. And then he goes on in this particular section, and he talks about uh, the dangers uh, that uh, that can come. And uh, this is the seventh point 
I, I, I don't know if I've numbered all of them, but this is a seven point that these little children represent the humble disciple who's serving the Lord. They aren't seeking status but service. So those who might cause such a disciple to go off course into false teaching or heresy is identified as stumbling in this ne- the next couple of verses and will come under tremendous discipline. So Jesus warns in verse 7, Woe to the world because of offenses causing stumbling, getting a, a disciple, a humble disciple, childlike disciple off course. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. And then in verses 8 and 9, he warns that this is so serious that you need to take whatever extreme measures you can. He uses hyperbole. He's not actually talking about plucking out your eye or cutting off a hand or a foot. He's saying that this is so important, you need to do whatever you can not to be uh, be caught up in a, in a situation where you are taken off course. You need to stay the course as a childlike uh, disciple. And this is going to involve forgiveness. And that is what starts to get developed in this next section. He transitions to forgiveness in this section. There are two parables. The first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. Now, this is so important because they're all sheep. That means they're all believers. Let that sink in. One of the sheep gets lost, and the shepherd goes to look for him. And there's a verse in here that is uh, that is stated, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And we often take that out of context and use that for, for salvation. But the context is talking about the believer who has been, who's stumbled and has gone off course into apostasy or false teaching. We also... Uh, distort verse 14 where Jesus says in the conclusion even so it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish see they're already a little one they're already a humble disciple but they've stumbled and they've gone off course and the perishing here isn't the lake of fire the perishing is divine discipline and judgment in time and the loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and so as Jesus transitions here he is warning that anyone who causes a disciple, a sheep, to stumble is headed for divine discipline and a loss of eternal status at the Bema seat. Ninth thing, and this is a section that's unique, or this whole parable of the lost sheep is unique to Matthew. The father seeks the lost sheep. He's going to forgive the lost sheep. He's going to restore the lost sheep. And that sets the stage for the next lesson. And the next lesson is introduced in verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. The emphasis here is that probably if you, if you have another Christian who's putting a stumbling block, going to lead you astray, take you off course, then you need to go deal with that. You need to talk to them personally, and if they don't respond, then take somebody else, and then eventually there's going to be uh, uh, some kind of, uh, of uh, temporal discipline as a result of that. So under uh, my tenth point in the review, this lesson on seeking out the brother who sins is then expanded in the next section by Peter's question. And Peter's question is, well, how often do I need to forgive my brother who sins against me? I mean, this guy keeps trying to lead me off course. I know, I'll be gracious, I'll forgive him seven times. 
Jesus says, no, you're going to forgive him seven, seven times, seven times 70. Up to 70, excuse me, up to 70 times seven, not just seven times. This means you're, you're always going to forgive him. This is the crux of this whole section. Dealing from Matthew 19, this issue of forgiveness is critical to the Christian life. Now, under point 11, what I want to do is develop this. Jesus uses that question to further develop the disciples' training and our training because he only says this, answers his question. He says, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And then Jesus launches into this parable. Therefore, this is a conclusion. Let's drive the point home with a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Now, here's the story. You have a servant who owes the king a vast amount of money. So much, it's 10,000 talents. It's a lifetime worth of earnings. He just can't pay it back. It's impossible. And he was unable to pay it back, verse 25. So his master commanded that he, that he be sold with his wife and children, all that he had, and the payment be made. The servant fell down before him and said, Master, have patience with me, and I'll pay you all. And the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Okay, now he's been forgiven this debt where he owed 10000 He owed a lifetime of income. He's forgiven that debt, but he doesn't learn the lesson of forgiveness, and he goes out and finds one of his fellow servants who owes him a 100 denarii. That's like a couple of weeks' worth of work. And lays hands on him, takes him by the throat, and says, Pay me what you owe. But his fellow servant falls down. I have patience with me. I'll pay you all. Uh, but the first servant, the forgiven servant, initial forgiven servant, says, no, I'm going to throw you in prison till you pay the debt, till you pay it all. So when his fellow servants heard this, they went to the uh, master, told him what had happened, and the master called him from him. Now, this is what you need to see. And I kind of skimmed over this because I ran out of time. I'm running out of time today, but I'm not going to skim over it. Verse 30 gives us an understanding of these pronouns. And he would not, that is, he, the forgiven servant, he would not forgive the other servant, the fellow servant. And he, the forgiven servant, would not, but went and threw him, that is, the fellow servant, into prison till he, the fellow servant, should pay the debt. Now, that identifies who these pronouns are going to be. Now, this is critical. Verse 33. The, the master calls him in and says, Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant as you receive compassion? Verse 34. And his master was angry and delivered him, that is, the wicked servant now. This is the one who was initially forgiven. He delivers him to the torturers until he, that is the fellow servant, should pay all that was due to him, the wicked servant. See, here's what's happening. The master is going to take the first servant that was forgiven so much because you didn't forgive your fellow servant. You're going to be thrown into prison until the fellow servant pays you everything. What's the point? The point is the only way the fellow servant's going to be able to erase the debt is for the wicked servant to forgive the fellow servant. 
the point of the passage is that we have to forgive one another. And there's no asterisk there that indicates a sin that's too great. Jesus told his disciples that we are to love one another as he loved us. And love is manifested through forgiveness. And so the only way for the wicked servant to avoid the divine discipline that will come from being, from not forgiving is to forgive the debt of the fellow servant. Now, it's in that context where he has raised the bar on what it means to forgive one another that Matthew inserts the confrontation with the Pharisees over marriage. I pointed this out last time. They say, where's the escape clause? How do we understand it? And Jesus says, granted, there's an exception, but here's the real issue is that God created man and woman to be married together forever. He didn't create them to get a divorce. So what you have to learn to do when you have tough times in your marriage is to forgive one another. He's applying in the first part of Matthew 19 what he's been talking about in two-thirds of the previous chapter, that that is essential if you're going to be a mature disciple who is serving the Lord. And the disciples understood that. That's what's emphasized in their response. They, they hear him and they said, if this is a case, if this is your standard for marriage, it's better not to marry. Jesus isn't saying you can't divorce. He's saying the real standard isn't like Shammai who says you have to get a divorce if this exception occurs. The point that Shammai is, that Jesus is making is that Granted, there are going to be times when that other person is just not going to be cooperative at all. In those cases, there's an exception. But the mentality that you have is no matter how much you've been hurt, how much you've been offended, how much you've been embarrassed, you've got to forgive and move forward. That is the issue. So that's the context to come to these last two little critical episodes that we see in, in Matthew. Matthew 13, 19, 13 through 15 is the first episode. The little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them, quit bringing the children. They hadn't learned the lesson from the beginning of chapter 18. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And in the synoptic gospels, in Mark and in Luke, it says exactly the same thing. Do not prohibit them, for of such is the kingdom of God. So Mark uses kingdom of God. Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. They're synonymous terms. But what in the world is being emphasized here? Luke adds, as he, ta- as he presents this account, in uh, Luke eighteen seventeen. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And too often we've heard that as a means of justification, and we have to be reminded that, as I pointed out in the beginning of Matthew 18, 3 through 4, this isn't talking about justification. This is talking about being a disciple. This is talking about the standards of growing and maturing as a believer. This is going to talk about the importance of forgiving one another, and this is going to emphasize 
that there is a, a standard of greatness that is predicated upon not seeking personal status but serving the Lord. To the unbeliever, what we have to express and make clear is that eternal life in heaven when we die is not based on being humble. It's not based on forgiving one another. It's not based on having a great marriage. It's not based on ritual. It's not based on doing anything at all. Jesus Christ did it all. He paid it all. On the cross, he said it is finished to die. That means paid in full. He paid for sins so that the gospel message is a gospel announcing that sins have been forgiven. Your debt, against, your debt with God has been erased. Accept it as a free gift. That is justification by faith alone. But to the believer, it doesn't stop there. We ask the question, after salvation, then what? After salvation, we're called to be a disciple, to follow Jesus, to follow him, to grow to maturity, and to exhibit Christ-like character. It's impossible on our own. You can't do it. I can't do it. We don't have bootstraps big enough, tough enough, strong enough to pull ourselves up by them. We have to walk by the Spirit. But we have to make a decision each and every day and dozens of times during the day, am I going to be a disciple of Jesus and follow him, or am I just going to live my life my way? And we'll find out how well we do at the judgment seat of Christ. But the challenge is, what is our focus? Are we going to follow Jesus or not? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to... Uh, review, reflect, be reminded of the whole context of, uh, of what is going on here in Matthew and Matthew's challenge to us to be disciples. Father, help us to understand the significance of that in each of our own lives and the decisions we make. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that's never uh, trusted in Jesus as their Savior, understood that he died on the cross and paid for everything, that nothing is needed for us to do or to add to what Jesus did, it's simply faith alone. We pray that will be made clear. Father, we pray for the rest of us that we might be reminded that we are to press on. We have a high calling in Jesus Christ. We are challenged to be disciples, to follow Jesus. We can't do that on our own. We have to walk by the Spirit. We have to learn what that means, and we have to make your word the priority in our life. We pray that we would respond positively to that challenge. In Jesus' name, amen.